Um, when Emma Jane came in here this morning and I mentioned that she was late, that was a bit humiliating, wasn't it? Because it wasn't your fault, was it? It was your sister's, but she's not here, so we can say that now. But it, it, it was a little bit humiliating. Um, that's not a major, major humiliation. But sometimes you get really humiliated, really feel awful. Well, when the Bible uses the term, and when the catechism uses the term humiliation, it means a lot, lot more than we would normally understand. So, in terms of understanding this, in, in terms of Jesus, I want you to think about it this way, as though Jesus is way, way, way up there, and being humiliated, He's brought way, way, way down. And so, first of all, we have to consider where He came from. And uh, actually, Mr. Daly, could you get me a pew Bible, please? So I don't have to keep asking people. Thank you. Let's look at Philippians 2, which... Uh, Emma Jane, can you help the girls with, look up the index, I think? On you, you've all got different Bibles, so you can look up the page number on that. And... F- Philippians chapter 2, which is on page 1,179 of the Pew Bible. And I want to look at verse 5, which says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. John 1 verse 1 says that... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a difficult bit for some people to grasp and to understand, but Jesus was alive before He was born. He came as a human being, but before He came as a human being, He was God. And we have so little idea, really, of what that means in terms of the glory, in terms of the holiness, in terms of the beauty, in terms of the love, in terms of the relationship He had with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, in terms of the angels worshiping Him, in terms of Him being the Creator, because the Bible tells us, John 1 verse 1 tells us, He then goes on to tell us that it's by the Word everything was created. Colossians tells us that He created Graham Kendrick Um, puts it really, really well in this song where he talks about stars that flung hands into, uh, hands that flung stars into space. It is really, really hard for us to grasp and to understand. No one understands. Nobody. I do not, if if someone says, I understand this, then they haven't got it. To realize just how glorious Christ was in heaven and to come from that. He, He lived the Word, when it says in John 1, 1, the Word was with God, it literally means like He was face-to-face with God. He had a really close, a real, the most intimate relationship with the Father. He was the Creator. He was independent. He didn't need anyone or anything. And He came from that. Now, we could spend a lot of time looking at what He came from, but just to have some idea of how great it was that he came from that. And there are five things, I think, that the Catechism says, summarizes, and and what it meant for Jesus, what he actually came to. The first is 
that he was actually born at all. Now, none of us remember our birth. Some of us have been at births. Uh, they are messy. They are not particularly pleasant and not particularly nice. Um, and it's for us, it's not a problem in a way because we didn't exist before. But to be a baby again, if you could imagine going back to be a baby, it would just be very humbling in that sense. Well, Galatians 4 verse 4, Paul says, God sent His Son born of a woman. And that is very, very important because what is being said is that when you look at a scan of a baby, the baby is part of the mother's flesh, and it's saying that Jesus, God, came, and first of all, He lived in Mary's womb. It's an extraordinary uh, story. It's an extraordinary event. It's something that is amazing in so many different ways, the virgin birth and so on, and I'm not going to go into that, but the aspect I want to stress of it is how humbling it is. The thing about a baby is, when you, even if you've got a, a baby who's just been born, everyone kind of goes, oh, because they're so tiny, and they're so precious, and they're so vulnerable, and they are so fragile. So what you've got, and I think this is the greatest thing actually of all, is people will argue about this, but you've got Christ coming from the glory of heaven coming from the, the throne of heaven, coming from creating the universe, coming into that creation and being vulnerable and weak and just uh, an embryo and then a, a baby. It's part of what was promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would bruise the heel uh, of the devil, of the serpent. Well, uh, a man called Thomas Watson, who I read a lot with this kind of thing, because I think he's a great way of putting things. He says this, man made in God's image is a wonder. God made in man's image is a greater wonder. And when you understand something of who God is, the incarnation that Jesus becoming man is just such a mind-blowing and incredible idea. And I, I want to stress that. I want to stress it just again and again and again, we think, well, for God to become human, that's, you know, that's, a, that's good. He becomes like us. We just have no concept of just how humbling that was. The second part that's pointed out in the Bible, the Catechism summarizes, is that he was poor. He was born poor. He wasn't born in a, a, a really rich place. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in a big city. He was born in Bethlehem. Watson says this, he was born in an inn and his manger was a cradle. Now, we, we uh, was his cradle. We say a manger and it kind of sounds cute because most of us don't have mangers. But let me ask any of the children, do any of you have any pets? Eden, what, do you, what have you got? A dog and a cat. What do you feed the dog with? Food. And what do you put it in? A bowl. Okay. Do you know what a manger is used for? To feed, not dogs and cats, but to feed cows or uh, to feed donkeys or whatever. So basically, health and hygiene wouldn't be too happy with this, but he was put, when he was born, he wasn't put in a cot, there was no cot, 
there was no shops that they went to, and they, and they, and they bought all the stuff that new babies you're looking for. There was no pram or anything like that. There was no sterilizing equipment. He was basically put in an animal's feed trough. He was born poor. Watson says this, born in an inn, a manger was his cradle, the cobwebs his curtains, the beasts his companions. He descended of poor parents. Now, we might sometimes think, well, we're poor compared with other people. But when you see real poverty, it's really, really shocking. Hugh uh, took the team to Burundi. Am I right in saying, Hugh, that Burundi is the poorest nation in the world? And when you're there, you see a fair amount of that? Yeah. And it's, a, it's something that is, it's hard to describe, isn't it? I mean, you have to experience it. We were in South, South Africa in um, Pretoria, were we? Or Johannesburg, one of them. Pretoria it was. And for church, we went out to one of the townships. This was a township where a million people lived. And they lived in sheds that I wouldn't put chickens in. And it was just incredible to see the level of that poverty. Well, we know that Jesus' parents were poor for lots of different reasons, but one of them, the, the most interesting ones is in Luke chapter 2. And ver- in fact, let's turn to it. Luke chapter 2 and verse 24. Luke 2 verse 24. Okay, this is Jesus' parents going to offer a sacrifice. Let's see if any of our young people can tell us what did he sacrifice? What did they sacrifice? Luke 2, verse 24. Who can find it? Anyone got it? Eden? Two doves... Or two young turtles. Was it say two young pigeons? Well, oh, sorry. <laughs> two, two turtle doves. That's what it is. It's my, that was my fault. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Not two, two young turtles. You say, well, so what? He's got to sacrifice two, two doves. What does that mean? What that means is it's quite humiliating because it wasn't considered to be, well, it was a proper sacrifice. But in Leviticus, it talks about how you would sacrifice a sheep or goat. But if you were too poor to afford those things, then you would sacrifice two doves. So it's like someone coming to church and saying, I'm too poor. And they were. Jesus' parents were poor. Jesus was born in poverty. Jesus lived in poverty. We know that Jesus' father, Joseph, uh, in terms of his family father, that he, he died while Jesus was probably a young boy or a teenager. We know that Jesus had to work, to make a living. He would have had to provide for his whole family. He worked as a carpenter. Now, again, you think about what is involved with that, and, you know, there's a kind of romance about being poor. You know, oh, we were poor, but we were happy, and all that kind of stuff. It's not fun being poor. Third thing about Jesus' humiliation, it says that he is subject to two things, to God's law and to the miseries of this life. Now, that sounds Um, Well, subject to God's law, what does that mean? He submitted himself to obey what the law required, and he submitted himself to experience what we experience in life. 
In fact, the Bible puts it in this way. We, we looked at it this morning that when he was uh, traveling in, across the Sea of Galilee in a storm, he was so tired that he slept dur- through the storm. He experienced hunger. He experienced tiredness. He experienced sorrow. But more than that, the Bible says that he was a slave. Now, in our culture, we don't have slaves. We do have servants in a, in a, in a way. But it said that Jesus came to serve. And the great example of that is something that we, we, tend to, we tend not to realize just how important this is. When you traveled in Israel, when you traveled in the Middle East, you'd probably travel wearing your sandals, and because it's dusty, your feet would get dirty, and your feet would get sweaty, and your feet would get really smelly. So you would have basically stinking feet. And when you came into someone's house, they didn't want you in their house. You would take your sandals off, but they didn't want you in their house with their stinking feet, with your stinking feet. So they would have servants. And it's a real rough job if you're a servant. When we were on camp, uh, everyone was quite happy to do the cleaning outside, to clean the minibus. Cleaning the toilets, that is the job that nobody wanted to do. Well, in this culture, cleaning someone's feet, that's when you're starting at the bottom rung of being a servant or a slave. And Jesus, in one story, his, his disciples are sitting around, his disciples are having a meal, and Jesus gets up and he gets a basin and he gets towels and he goes around to his disciples and he wants to wash their feet. And one of the disciples, Peter, is so horrified at this, he says, no, no, Lord, never, 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 you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless you let me wash your feet, you're going to have nothing to do with me. And of course, Peter then goes to the other extreme and says, right, wash my whole body then. He says, no, no, just do the feet. <laughs> but um, It was just something you would not expect someone to do. It's uh, uh, Mark Driscoll has, a, I think, a really good illustration of this about serving. He talks about, imagine if you came home, I'm adapting it a little bit for British ears, and you went home, uh, say tomorrow, you went home and Barack Obama was there cutting your grass, and Gordon Brown, you went in the kitchen and Gordon Brown was doing your dishes, and you went in and there's the queen hoovering away, and you kind of say, hey guys, what are you doing here? This is a, this is, and they respond and say, well, look, and this does get a bit daft, it sounds like, you know, you can kill us and bury us in your back garden, and three days we're going to rise again and finish the job. It's just you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you would not expect someone who is really well known or really famous or really rich to be in your house saying, I've come to help you. At least not without it being very, very patronizing, a bit like the sort of secret millionaire thing where someone pretends that they don't have millions and they go and help people who are poorer and so on, but they're always going to go back to their previous life. And Jesus comes and he comes to serve. His purpose is to serve. Now, if you, if you think that that's just, a, oh, yeah, you, you, again, you just haven't grasped how wonderful it is. Jesus comes to clean our feet, to serve. The fourth way that Jesus is humbled is he's made sin. The wrath of God being subject to the wrath of God and the curse of death on a cross. Go to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. You'll find it on page 1000. 
160 in the Pew Bible. And it just says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, again, maybe some of the younger people can help me here. We ask this before at camp. We ask it all the time, but what is sin? And some of the older people will, of course, remember the catechism from previous talks three months, six months ago, and you'll all have it off by heart, but what is sin? Anyone have any idea what sin is? Emma Jane? Disobeying God. One way we explained it is sin is the middle, what's the middle letter of sin, Rachel? I. It's when we put I in the center. It means we, we are greedy, we become selfish, everything becomes about us. It's when we go against God, it's when we disobey God. It's something that ends up being really ugly and really, really horrible. And it says here that Jesus was made sin. God made him who had no sin, who was perfect, to be sin for us. And again, we could spend hours looking at this and examining what it means. When you see what sin is, how horrible sin is, how evil and twisted and sick and perverted and disgusting sin is, and you see something of it in your own life, and you see something of it in other people's lives, and you see how it works out in our culture and in our communities. The idea that, that Jesus would come from glory and would come and become sin, and what that really means is that He would carry our sin, and God would look upon Him as a sinner. It really is unbelievable. And then the last thing is, he was dead. It says he was buried and in continuing under the power of death for a time. It is one of the most horrible experiences in life to see someone that you know and to see them dead. There's no life, there's no light, there's no love, there's no power, there's no talk, there's no communication, there's no breath in the body, there is just a corpse. And in one sense, it is the ultimate humiliation. We try and treat the body with dignity. Even when someone dies, you don't, you, you, want, you still want to treat the body with dignity. But it's, it's very undignified. It's all gone. Uh, myself and Annabelle were uh, having a very nice meal on Friday night, celebrating our 23rd anniversary. And as we were sitting there in this rather posh place, the, uh, there was a table across from us, and they began to talk about a trip they had to a funeral in the Highlands in Inverness. And I was very restrained, thanks to Animal's wise counsel, but they started going on about Highlanders and the wee freeze and how there wasn't a crematorium in Inverness until recently, which wasn't true, but never mind, because the wee freeze opposed it, because apparently the wee freeze believe that their body is going to be raised from the dead, and they didn't want it to be raised burnt. <laughs> now, the astonishing ignorance of that statement was, you know, I was just, I was sitting there going, <laughs> don't, and I was going, don't, don't say anything, but um, I, I, I did think about it a little bit and thought, have you no idea, what do you think we go into a, a, a a coffin, and, and we're, we're kind of 
automatically mummified so we stay exactly the same as we are? No, of course, we know that, that we rot. We know that that's what happens. So what happens to the body? We know that. But we still want to treat the human body with respect in some way or other. But to think of Jesus being in the position where if he was here, lying down on the slab, dead. Actually, he really was dead. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't pretending. He was truly 100% dead. And this one is the, is the hard one for me to grasp. He was under the power of death for a time. You know, the, the early church struggled with that whole idea. What, where did he go? What happened? How did it work out? And the answer is we just don't know. We really don't know. But there is no doubt at all that Jesus came off that cross dead. He had to be carried. He was not conscious. He was not um, alive. There was no breath. He was taken in to be buried in this tomb. And he stayed under the power of death for a time. We don't know how long. We don't know actually when he rose. We know it. Well, we, it's, he was discovered. it was discovered that he rose from the dead on the third day. And we don't know when on that day. But he was actually literally dead. And that's extraordinary because here you have the creator of the whole universe dead. It just, for, it, it just doesn't connect or make sense unless we accept what the Bible is saying about he did this. This was his humiliation. His humiliation then consisted in being born, in being poor, in being subject to the miseries of this life, in being made sin and in dying. Now, I, I don't think we can fully grasp this because the gap between the Creator and the creation. See, a lot of people say, well, you know, it's like if you were a human being and you wanted to talk to the ants and you went down and you became an ant. And that's an analogy and an illustration that people use. But I'll tell you why it doesn't work. Because both you and I and the ant are created. And it's not enough. It's just not enough. It's, it's, a, it's a good illustration as far as it goes. But as long as you realize it only goes a little bit. To have the Creator become part of the creation and be subject to other parts of the creation, and to live in poverty, and to be made sin, and to die, is something that is just too wonderful to comprehend. Now, we ask why, and the answer is because it was, it's because of us that he hung and suffered there. It's because of us that he became a baby, and what's involved in that. Now, we're going to sing about that just now, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should send His only Son, and so on. And as we sing these words, please think is one word that I would use, but meditate is another word that I would use. There's no way that you can think and get it all in your head. Nobody can but you can be amazed at the wonder of what God has done. So we'll stand uh, and sing this, and Claire's going to lead us on the flute. It's the great part of being a Christian. It's the most wonderful thing in the world, and it should fill your heart with love for Jesus Christ. It should fill you with hope and energy and renewed strength, and it should lift you to worship but uh, Thomas Watson, again, now comes the difficult bit in a way. 
and the challenging bit. Because he talks about the uses that we can make of this teaching. And I'm just going to go through this. One bit in particular I want to try and apply. If Christ took our flesh, then what we long for, if He became a human being, we long for Him to be born in us. Now, go to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19. Just so that you can see this is not some kind of strange teaching. What does it mean for Christ to be born in us? Galatians 4 and verse 19, which is on page 1171, and it says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There's this extraordinary thing that happens that it's becoming a Christian is not just believing that these things occurred. It's not just deciding to live a certain style of life. It's that Christ, you are, we are born again, and it's almost as though Christ is born in us. That's what um, Paul is talking about. There's just something changes. It's a very, very famous painting of Revelation 3.20 of Holman Hunt, of Jesus standing and knocking at the door. It's meant to be representing the door of our heart and saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Well, there's this extraordinary thing that occurs that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit so that we are born again, and we become like Christ. Now, how do we know if we're born again? There are signs of spiritual life. It's like a baby. You know that a baby is born. It, it breathes. It cries. You know, it's, that's, it's a baby. It's alive. There are signs that are there. In a spiritual sense, there are certain things that how do you know that you are born again? How do you know that God is working in your life? Well, one thing is, the fact that you're asking the question at all, if it really bothers you. The second thing is, if you're aware of your sin, if you're going, oh, yes, that's because that's a sign of God's Spirit at work in your life. Also, Peter talks about like newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the Word. If you've got a hunger for God's Word, suddenly the Bible has stopped being this kind of boring history book, and suddenly it's become alive to you. There's a hunger for God's Word, and there's a love for God's people. Those are, those are all signs of God's grace being at work in your life and Christ being born in us. Now, a lot of people don't like this kind of talk, and we are very, very, very content with, a, with almost a Christless religion. And what I mean by that is with a Jesus who's there, with a Jesus who's on the wall, but not a Jesus within. And I believe that that's one of the things that's just so wrong with the church. We've become satisfied with religion, and we've no hunger or appetite for Jesus Christ. Let me put it another way. If Christ, Watson says, if Christ is made in our image, we should want to be in His image. In other words, we should want to be like Him. And Watson lists five things which I, I want to, to mention. Number one, we should be like Jesus in what he calls disposition. 
in sweetness of character. What did Jesus do? He prayed for His enemies. He conquered them by love. I can't be like Christ. We like the idea of Jesus forgiving us. The notion that He forgives us that we might become like Him is a much less comforting idea because it means we can't hate. It means we have to follow Christ. We have to love like Christ. I love Watson says, a frozen heart will be thawed with the fire of love. See, there are plenty of us as Christians, we want to scream at the darkness, and fair enough, you can understand that. We get really frustrated at how cold people are. We've got that relative, that daughter, that mother, that father, that son, that brother, that sister, who's just so hard to the gospel. That husband or wife, that friend. And there's just so, it's just stone deadness. We know that the Spirit has to work in their life, but the Spirit uses means, and one of the means that the Spirit uses is by working in our lives so that we reflect and we show and we demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. A frozen heart will be thawed with the fire of love. We have to be like Christ in grace as well. He's like us in, in our flesh. We are to be like Him in grace, and we are to have true humility. Now, I'm going to come back to that because it's, it's something that's just really stuck in my head about how unlike Christ I am in so many ways. We are to be like Christ, thirdly, in zeal, zealous for God's truth and glory. Now, there's a zeal without prudence, which is rashness. There's a prudence without zeal, which is cowardliness but we are to be zealous for God's glory. We want to see God glorified. We want to see Christ lifted up. And Christ was like that. He was zealous for the glory of God. Number four, we're to be in contempt of the world. Because what, did, did Jesus get money? No. Did Jesus want power? No. Did He want prestige? No. Did He want a great job? Did He want a nice house? Did He go for all these things? No, He didn't. He took the cross instead of the crown. What good, he said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Now, lots and lots of people are very, very happy for us to be religious, providing it doesn't interfere with their lives or even with our lives. And what they mean by that is, providing we accept the same value system and go along the same way, fine. If you want to have, be a religious person like that, that's okay, as long as you're basically the same. But it is really hard if you're at work and you don't have the same value system of your boss who thinks that work is all that there is. It's really hard if you live in a culture where people judge your status by the car that you drive, and you don't want that. It's really hard to not to be caught up with the values of this world, but if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, we have to hold these values in a certain contempt. And then Watson talks about conversation and what it means, lifestyle. We are not to be like Christ in working miracles, says St. Augustine, but in a holy life. I guess we would all like to be like Jesus, being able to go around and raise the dead and heal the sick and so on. That's not promised to us, but we are promised this and we are told this, to be holy as I am holy. We are the walking pictures of Jesus Christ. And part of the reason is this. There's virtually 
not nobody, but very few people in our culture are going to read this book. And why should they? They have no interest. And here's the problem. They're only going to read this book if they read us first. And if by reading us, they think, I need to read this book to find out what makes them different. The trouble with our witness and our evangelism and with the church is so much, it's just, we've neglected the book, we've neglected Christ, and we ourselves are not good mirrors of Jesus Christ. So, people aren't interested. Nobody's really interested. But if we could show that we were really followers of Jesus Christ, you don't have to wear a t-shirt, you don't have to announce it, you just have to be it, then there would be a lot more people saying, I want to read that book. I want to find out what it is that makes you different. Christ is made in our likeness, therefore, we have to be made in His. In other words, we are to be many Christs walking about Dundee. Now, you back off and think about that and think, tomorrow when I go to work, I am a representation of Christ. I am an image of Christ. Tomorrow when I go to the shop, I am an image of Christ. Tomorrow when I'm driving my car, I'm an image of Christ. You see how incredibly that impacts every aspect of your behavior, because it means when someone cuts you up on the road, you don't start yelling at them and swearing at them, because would Jesus do that? Of course He wouldn't. It means it, it just revolutionizes and changes everything. There's another aspect of this, and this comes back to the humility. If Christ was humbled for us, then we have to be willing to be humbled for Him. If Christ served us, then we have to be willing to serve Him. Now, here is my problem. Here is the disconnect. Here is where I am really, really struggling. And it, it's really hard to say this without sounding like a nag. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a nag because it's, it's something that I feel within myself as well. I, I, I think of what Christ did. And then I think, how am I willing to be humbled? And basically, I'm not. And I don't think we are in the church. We're full of ourselves and what we want and what we are and protecting ourselves and looking after ourselves. And we don't get that we are to be like Christ. See, if we get this wrong, this is what happens. I'm going to give you some examples. And to be honest, I, I thought about St. Peter's and I thought about other churches, and I thought about Christians I know, and I thought about myself, and I could give lots of examples, personally and of other people, where we are, we are not walking humbly as Christ. And then I thought, that's really unfair. You know, you can't pick on people, and you can't just talk about yourself. So, is there anything in Scripture? And then I thought, yes, there is. There's loads of names. And I started going through the names, and I'm going to give you and exam examples of what happens when we don't get what Christ did, and we don't get that we're supposed to imitate Him and be humble. Um, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And these are all examples that, in different ways, and there are many, many more. I'm only going to give you five of them. These are all examples where you can apply it to yourself and to our own situation. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says to him, 
Verse 9, he says, do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, the important thing about Demas is this. In an earlier letter, Paul says, I'm really grateful that Demas has come to visit me. Demas was one of his pals. Demas was one of his elders. Demas was a leader in the Christian church. And Paul is gutted because Demas has given up because he loved this world. He's deserted. He's deserted. Oh, he's gone to Thessalonica, and he's probably gone to the church there, and he's probably doing something, but he has deserted me because he loved this world. And the church is filled with people who profess the name of Jesus Christ and who are worldly, people who worship the Christ who came from glory, who became nothing so that we could become rich, people who worship that Jesus, but then who themselves live only for this world. What upsets them, what hurts them, what motivates them, what inspires them are the material things of this world and the relational things of this world. There's no concept of any kind of sacrifice or humbling or humiliation or giving. They don't want that. And it happens in the church. This is all things that go in the church. Again, 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, it says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. And if you go back into 1 Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 20, he talks about those who holding on to faith in a good conscience, uh, they should hold on to faith in a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is extraordinary, but there are people who hear the gospel, who say that they believe the gospel, who say that they are born-again Christians, who can sing all the songs and know, you know, could stand up and preach, and then at some point in their lives, they turn around and they say, actually, no, I reject this. I just reject it. They've not held on to faith. They've not held on to a good conscience. They just reject. And again, that is devastating in the church. Because what happens is you have the church as a collective witness, people start coming along, and then they discover that this person who was a CU leader, or this person who was an elder, or this person who was a minister, actually, they no longer believe. Sometimes they're just going through the motions, but sometimes they're not even there. And again, you think, how does this work with the humility of Jesus Christ? Or go to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, verse 2. Philippians 4, verse 2, where it's on page 1,180. I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, it's a great letter. It's a letter that's talking about Jesus coming and so on. Uh, Philippians 2, you can read the whole of Philippians 2, that wonderful thing about Jesus coming down from heaven and Jesus being made nothing and Jesus being crucified. And Paul writes this because there are two women who are, quobbling, who are squabbling and who are fighting with one another. I hesitate to say this, but possibly they were gossips, they were moans, they were just yip, 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 yip. And people think, well, what's that? What's the, what's the problem there? I tell you what the problem is, it utterly negates the gospel. When people gossip in church, it utterly negates the gospel. When people come to a prayer meeting and use it as an opportunity to gossip about somebody else, it negates the gospel. It negates Christ coming down because it's, it becomes, again, it's all about us. When you as a Christian 
go around and moan about your brothers and sisters in Christ, when I do that, then I'm, I'm looking at Christ coming down and I'm saying, so what? Well, these people are hurting me. These people are doing bad things to me. No, they're not. Not in comparison with what I did to Jesus or what happened to Jesus, and I'm supposed to copy him. Um, go to Third John, the third epistle of John, which is back towards the end, um, and verse 9. And again, just another, these are all just wee snippets of, of what life was like in the early church. I wrote to the church, says John, but Diotrephus, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. Here's the apostle John, and Diotrephus, leader, minister, elder, whatever, in the church, says, we're not having anything to do with John. Okay, he may have been a disciple of Jesus, but he's gone off the rocks or something. Again, it's the leadership in the church, which is just breathtaking. Someone who's ambitious, someone who loves to be first, and the church is plagued by people who want to be first. Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? Why can't I be number one? Because you're not. Because Jesus is. Because no one else ever, ever could be. I will come, if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. It's, you know, the, the notion sometimes goes around is women who gossip. No, men gossip just as much, and it's vicious. They're ambitious people. And then the other one is uh, in Acts 15, Barnabas. Now, that may seem strange because Barnabas is one of the heroes of the New Testament, but like all our heroes, he got some things wrong, and here he got this one wrong. In Acts chapter 15, and verse 37, we read, Barnabas, page 1111, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Here is the missionary couple par excellence, Barnabas and Paul, planting churches left, right, and center, seeing God work all over the place, wonderful miracles happening, and what happens? They have a fight. And what was the cause of that fight? Barnabas, who is the son of encouragement, could not see beyond John Mark, who was his own relative, and he let his family get in the way. He wasn't wise. Now, we know later on from the Bible that, that it was all made up and, you know, it got sorted out. That mess got sorted out. That's what happens. But again, what was happening? This is my family. He's family. Let's take him. No, no, we can't. It's not about your family. It's about Jesus. And here's the struggle that I think we have. And I'm talking here especially about evangelical churches where the Bible is taught. Because churches where the Bible's not taught, what do you expect? Just, they're dead weight, forget it. But churches where the Bible is taught, and where people profess to believe, and where you've got to profess to be a born-again Christian to be a member, we are far too deep into having this as a kind of head knowledge, but we are the worldly, the rejecters, the quarrelsome, the gossips, the ambitious, the unwise. And we've adopted this rather perverse view of grace which says, oh, it's okay because Jesus will forgive us. And we just carry on with life as though it's, that's fine. But it's not fine 
because Jesus does forgive us and Jesus does give us new life, but He gives us new life in order that we may live like Him, in order that we may be (coughs) trophies of His grace. Now, when we do live like that, it changes everything. And I'm going to finish by mentioning some examples in the New Testament of how that occurs. But I want to say why this is so important. I mean, it's so important because it's the very, very, very heart and core of the gospel, and it's the very heart and core of how we live. Forget your programs, forget all our traditions, forget just what we would like to see happen. We have to come and say, Lord, how can I be like you? How can I be humbled? In other words, we're really saying, how can I serve? We have been set free, says Hebrews, to serve the living God. And the service that we are to give is the service that Jesus Christ gave. How can I wash people's feet? I'm not doing that. It's not my turn. You know, when I think about it, rotas are ridiculous in a Christian church because what should really be happening is we should all, we we should have, Maddie should be having to beg people, look, look, enough, enough. There's only so many of you can do creche, you know? Uh, Oh, tea and coffee, forget that. We're booked up for the next, you know, if you want to do tea and coffee, you're going to have to come quicker. Right? But that's, that's just a tiny, tiny example. Oh, and I've got, you know, and we can't even do the tiny stuff. But what about the big stuff? What about people who start coming to church and you realize when they start coming that, oh, it's going to be a whole mess and a whole lot of involvement. And, you know, my life's busy enough and stressed enough without new people coming and creating more stress. I don't care. Because we can't think like that. We have to think. We really do have to think, what would Jesus really do? And you know, there's a tremendous liberty in being able to serve Him. And really, what we should be begging Jesus is, Lord, please give me a chance to serve. And look what happens. Go to Romans 16, and I'll just take the names from there, some of them. And again, I'll take five. There's more, and there's more in other letters. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. By the way, in Romans 16, it's fascinating how many of the people here are women. A deaconess or a servant of the church in Sencria. There's Phoebe, someone who is a deaconess, and that's not like an office with, wasn't that important, isn't that wonderful? She's just a woman who serves the church. Then verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Here's Priscilla and Aquila, who because they see the humility of Jesus Christ and the humiliation of Jesus Christ, they, they are risk takers. They are teachers, both of them. Priscilla was a teacher. Aquila was a teacher. They are teachers and risk takers because they saw what Jesus did. It's not about them. It's about Jesus. Look, uh, go down to verse 6. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. And then verse 12. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, these women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. And you see what's in there? Women who are hard workers. I get, and I suspect lots of people get tired, of women and men who are not hard workers. But boy, they can moan. 
they can talk and they can complain about their status and their position, how this is not happening and that is not happening. And you think, no, no, you're not. You're not seeing it. These women worked hard not because they wanted status in the church. They worked hard not because they wanted office. They worked hard not because they wanted money. They worked hard not because they wanted people to look at them. They worked hard because they saw that Jesus had come down. They saw the humiliation of Jesus. And they were just so thankful to be able to serve Him. A Christian is a hard worker. The fourth one, verse 10, Apelas, greet Apelas, tested and approved in Christ. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he sat an exam. It means he went through a tough time. Tested and approved in Christ. And again, why did he go through that tough time? Why did he stick with it? Why did he endure? Why didn't he just walk away from the church in Rome? Why didn't he just become a secret Christian or backslide? Not because of any inherent strength within himself, but because he saw Christ, and he saw what Christ had done. And then verse 23, Gaius the hospitable. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. You can tell when God is beginning to work in a congregation. When you walk up to people and you invite them for Sunday lunch and they say, oh no, I'm sorry, I've already been invited. You can tell when God is at work, when the stranger walks in and the stranger is welcomed. You know that there is something wrong when we're too busy to bother, when we have no time. It's, you just contrast, I can't, I have no time. I, I can't speak to people. I don't want to speak to people. I don't want to have a coffee with people. I don't want to invite them for a meal. Now, we're not talking about exhausting yourselves, but maybe, well, maybe we are because we exhaust ourselves in lots of other things. Why not exhaust ourselves in serving people? McShane's great dictum is, I would rather burn out than dry out. But I mean, we, do we see people? Do we see Christ? Do we see people who are around us as people who are lost, as people who need Christ, as people whom Jesus Christ died for? I question that a lot. The more I go on, the more I find the gospel wonderful, the more I believe the gospel, and the more I see how relevant it is to the needs of the people around us. And I don't want to be too depressing about it, but I do think the more I go on, the more I see how much of the church, not all, not all, not by any means, but how much of the church is just disconnected from that. We don't have that burden of the Lord. We don't feel it. We want to sing it. We want to go to a conference where there's 2,000 people singing how deep the Father's love for us. We want to sing about amazing grace, but we're not prepared to let Christ be formed in us and to walk humbly as He did in serving others. Take these two things. Take this teaching about the cross of Jesus and take, it's not, it really is not meant to be a nag but just ask, like Samuel, I've been reading about Samuel, he's just a boy, like the age of you girls here, just, he heard God and said, God, what do you want me to do? Speak, for your servant is listening. At least, at least, let us be able to do that, and let's hear what God the Lord will say.
may speak peace to us. And may we be able to speak peace and live peace to other people. Let's pray.